how do we really know if God is calling someone to do something? What does it even mean to be called? Is there an exact thing that God calls you to? And if so, what is the will of God? How do we know then if we're in the will of God? And so my question today and my goal is for us just to really just scratch the surface on this big idea, this big topic of what does it mean to be called or what does it mean to be in the will of God? And we're going to see that today in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, here's what's happening in the text. Paul is the church planner who planted uh, the church at Corinth. He was with them for a year and a half. And now, as he's moved away, planting other churches, the church at Corinth begins to doubt Paul's intentions. Rumors have started, and they've gone around that he doesn't care about them, that he spends all of his time traveling to other places, and he doesn't stop to see them. And so at the end of chapter 1, Paul begins to explain his intentions. And now in chapter 2, he's showing them that he did the very best before God to obey Christ and to follow his will. And so we're going to see what that means for Paul. Okay, what does it mean that Paul did his best to obey God and to follow his will? We're going to see it in chapter 2, starting in verse 12. He says, When I came to Troas... To preach the gospel of Christ, even through a door, was opened for me in the Lord. My spirit was not at rest, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So what Paul's doing here is explaining to the church of Corinth, this is why I could not come to you. This is why I could not visit you. And so what, what Paul's describing is, is this time that he had set up an appointment to meet with Titus in Troas. Titus had just delivered this um, really tough letter to the church at Corinth. In fact, I think the letter, I think Paul refers to it as a strong letter. And it may have been 1 Corinthians. We're not exactly sure what letter it was, but we can assume that it was 1 Corinthians. The thing is, as Paul's waiting for Titus to come to Troas, Titus didn't show up. And so Paul's assuming, okay, my boy Titus was supposed to go and give this letter to Corinth. It was a strong letter. Maybe they killed him. I don't know, but he's not here. And so what Paul began to do while he's in Troas is he begins to preach the gospel. People come to know Christ, but his spirit was not at rest. He knew that God wanted him to leave. Now, the question is, how did he know that God wanted him to leave Troas and to go to Macedonia and not go to see the church at Corinth? How did he know that? Well, we see it in Acts 16 where this event actually took place. So track with me, if you will. Go to Acts 16. We're going to look at verses 6 through 10. This is what happened on Paul's missionary journey. This is what happened when he left Troas to flee to Macedonia. It says, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Messiah, they attempted to go to Bethina, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. See that? The Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by to Messiah, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, 
immediately we sought to go. This is Luke talking. We sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God has, what's the word? Called us to preach the gospel to them. How did Paul know when it was okay to leave to go to Macedonia? God told him so. That's how Paul knew. So here's something that you need to understand about how God spoke to people in Scripture. Most people live during, most people that lived during the Old and New Testament, most of them did not hear God's audible voice, all right? But some did. Those who heard God's audible voice were mainly people like prophets, some priests, some apostles, or someone who had a very unique role within redemption within redemptive history, such as um, Samson's parents. Samson's parents hear an angel of the Lord. Angel of the Lord tells them, you're going to have a baby. Sarah, Abraham and Sarah tell Sarah, you're going to have a baby. Elizabeth, um, Mary, the angel of the Lord comes to them, speaks to them. They see the angel. They hear the voice. You're going to have a baby. So these are ways that God has spoken throughout the New and Old Testament. And specifically in the Old Testament, the way that the apostles knew what God wanted them to do was through an audible voice or through a dream or vision. And so here's why the Lord spoke that way, specifically in the New Testament, because the New Testament wasn't yet written. They were the New Testament. They didn't have the Gospels written like we do. They didn't have all of these instructions on the church or how to be, how believers should treat one another, how to baptize, how to take communion, how to do missions. They, did, they would just hear from God and then they would speak it to the congregation because they didn't have the written word. But here's the thing. When people in the Old and New Testament heard God's voice, they knew it. That's what I want you to see. They absolutely knew it. It wasn't hard to figure out. The earth trembled. They hear a voice. And people around them also hear that voice. Okay, that's God, right? Lightning strikes. I hear a voice. The people around me hear a voice. That must be God. People, you go, you, you see an image and you fall down to your face because you're humbled by this incredible, magnificent sight in front of you. That must be God, right? You go blind for several days after you see this image. So every single time that someone would hear God's voice or see an image or see an angel that spoken to them, it jacked them up for a really, really, really long time. I mean, you think about John's father, Zechariah. He hears God's voice, and he's not even allowed to speak for his entire wife's pregnancy. For nine months, this dude is mute. Because he hears God's voice. So, so listen, when God spoke, it was imperatively clear. And so how does God speak now? Well, we don't live in New Testament times. We actually have more than what they had, even though they heard the audible voice. We actually had the full counsel of God's word. We have God's written word. Now, I'm not saying that God can't speak to you audibly. I'm just saying that he primarily 
and chiefly speaks through his word. And if he did speak to you audibly, you would absolutely know it. That's how he's chosen to reveal himself in the church age, though, through his word. And so if you want to hear the audible voice of God, I would say just take the Bible and read it out loud. That's how you can hear the audible voice of God. And here's why I want to challenge you today with this. Paul knew absolutely with certainty, okay, I need to leave Troas and I need to go to Macedonia. And his, this is his defense to the church of Corinth. Hey, don't be mad at me. You can blame it on God because God told me audibly to go to this place. But here's why I think it's important that we need to caution ourselves when we use this phrase because overused in Christian culture of God is calling me or God is telling me we hear it all the time. But here's what, will, here's what will, can happen when we do that. One, we can misrepresent God. And two, we can use this as sort of a trump card. Let me explain how, first of all, how it can misrepresent God. It's clear in Scripture not to use the Lord's name in vain. And most of the time we think using the Lord's name in vain is saying GD. But, but most of the time when you hear that phrase, it's not, that's not all that it is to take the Lord's name in vain. What I think of when I think of taking the Lord's name in vain is actually saying something that he never said claiming to say something that he never claimed. That's what it means to really take the Lord's name in vain. So how can you be sure what God really says? Well, first of all, you cannot do that apart from God's word. With God's word, you can only be certain. And other than that, you just have to trust him. You cannot separate the will of God from the word of God. And to understand the word of will of God, you have to understand, you have to know the word of God. You can't know the word of God any more than you do the word of God. It's very important for you to see that this morning. If you want to understand the will of God, you have to know the word of God. This is exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 5. Verses 15 through 21, he says, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of our time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the, what's the word? Will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine as debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody uh, to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to, the God, to God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. He says, okay, how do you know the will of God? He says, you got to be filled with the Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, he talks about that in Colossians 3.16. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in, in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts toward God. Being filled with the Spirit, what that means is you're allowing the word of Christ dwell in you richly. He says, when you do that, you're gonna have a gladness in your heart. You're gonna live out the gospel. But not only that, you'll actually know what the will of the Lord is. And throughout the teaching passages in the New Testament, the way that the will of God is fleshed out is primarily done through understanding the word of God. So how, when we do this, when we, uh, when we say and claim things that God didn't say, we're misrepresenting God. We have to believe God's word. And so not only can you misrepresent God when you don't understand his will, but you can also use it as a trump guard. Let me give you an example. Since I've been here in Greenville, I've seen a lot of, Young ladies become believers when they're in college. 
And it's a great thing. A lot of them know uh, what a non-believing guy is like and what kind of non-believing guys they need to avoid because of cruddy pickup lines or how these guys handle themselves. They've, they've lived it enough to know, okay, that's a bad guy. And so what, what often happens is a girl becomes a believer in college and then they become a Christian so they assume Christian guys are way better. And they assume Christian guys don't use bad pickup lines because they're Christian guys. But let me just say this. There's creepy Christian guys too. These are guys who use their Christian lingo to pick up girls, all right? And I've even written a lot of different cheesy pickup lines that Christians use. Now, I know Solomon had 700 wives, and that's because he never met you. That's one. So I was reading the book of Numbers, and I realized I don't have yours. (laughs) You must be made out of water because Jesus turned you into fine. That's how I met what Jess. Um, how many times do I have to walk around you to make you fall for me? And this is my favorite one. My parents are home. Want to come over? That's an accountability one. Um, And so those are bad ones, but listen, like the worst ones are the guys who say, God told me to come over to you and talk to you. God says we should date. Okay, that's dangerous. That's a trump card because now the girl has to decide, do I really love Jesus this much? You're putting her in that situation. And so, so ladies, be careful with that guy, okay? That he's using Christian lingo to manipulate you and get what he wants. Or the girl who dumps the guy and blames it on God. That's the other one. God is saying no right now to our relationship. So now the dude's stuck with, not only is he rejected by her, but he's also rejected by God. He's got like double rejection. And the reason why it isn't good to use God's word or God's calling as a a trump card because it hurts people and it avoids having mature conversations. Like for the lady who dumps the guy and says, God's calling. Well, if she would, there's maybe things that he needs to hear of why you don't like him. Like maybe he needs to listen better. Maybe he needs to bathe more. Maybe he needs to get that thing called a job, right? Maybe he needs to hear how to grow up so he can be better for the next person. And so having mature conversations, what we should do as believers, and so we, what we often do is we say, well, God's telling me this, God wants me to do this, and it gets us out of having real mature conversations. Let me give you an, another example. Um, the first church I served at was very unhealthy, lots of patterns of sin going on in the church, bad theology, bad direction, open sin in the church, nothing's being addressed. And while I was there for about six months, it was very, very difficult. And so I prayed I remember one night I was in my house, I was praying, I said, Lord, please get me out of this, right? Get me out of this. And listen, while I was praying, the phone rang. I pick it up, it's literally another church offering me a job. I didn't even have my resume out or anything. Somebody had found out I was in a tough spot, and literally while I was praying. So, I mean, of course, what am I going to say? God wants me out of here, right? Right? I mean, I just asked him, and he answered. 
literally. He called me up and told me, get out of there. And so, like, what, am I, what did I do? Like, so when I, when I went to the church, I was 20, 21 years old. I went to the church and said, hey, this is what happened. God, I was praying, and I didn't tell him what I was praying for, but I was like, I was praying. And God called me and gave me a, another opportunity, and so I'm going to leave. And so what does that do? No one's going to argue with God. And so, like, I've got God on my side telling me I've got to go. And so it, it, I got up in front of the church. Hey, the Lord's just made it very clear, very clear. I need to go somewhere else. I'm going to go. I've got another ministry opportunity. Now, was that a good thing? It's not. Because what I needed to say to the leadership, hey, this is why I was praying in the first place. All right, there's unhealthy patterns of sin here. You're allowing this guy to serve who's in open rebellion towards God. When we preach, we don't preach the gospel. When things like this are handled, we don't follow scripture. That would have been really mature for me as a young man in the ministry. That would have been really good for that church. Because it would have said, okay, this is why we can't keep this young, passionate guy who loves the Lord. It would have been really helpful for them. And so what happens when we use God's calling, it sort of gets us out of this. And so here's the other thing. I can't base my life on phone calls like that. Because I don't always get phone calls like that when I want to be bailed out of a situation. Sometimes the Lord might allow me to get a phone call like that to actually maybe even challenge my motives and to stay where I am. I can't know for sure. I can't know for certain. The only thing we can know for certain is God's word. And this is how Paul knew for certain to leave to go to Troas. So the question is this. What does it mean to be called and what does it look like? If you hear this phrase all the time, it should matter to us what it means. And so thankfully, Paul's going to show us in the next few verses. Verse 14. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads, and I love this, you miss anything in this sermon, do not miss this, spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for... um, Who is sufficient for these things? Notice what Paul just says about believers. He says, he's saying specifically about Paul and the church, but he specifically applies to believers as well. So we are the aroma of Christ. What does that mean? Well, this language, it actually harkens back to the Old Testament. Oftentimes, when a sacrifice was made in the Old Testament, there, there was an aroma of that sacrifice that was pleasing to the Lord. Let me, let me show you a place where this happens. After Noah builds an ark and endures a 40-day flood, the water subsides and Noah is thankful. And so what does he do? He makes a sacrifice to the Lord. And you'll see it in Genesis 8, verse 21. Verse 20, he says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, 
I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again strike down every living creature as I have done. So what was pleasing? It was pleasing to the Lord. The aroma of Noah's sacrifice to trust God that he would never curse the earth again in this way um, was pleasing to the Lord. You even see this phrase show up multiple times, like with the priest in Exodus 29. You see it when the law is given in Leviticus, uh, when sacrifices that were made, it was aroma pleasing to the Lord. A believer in the Old Testament was to give an offering that was so sweet that the aroma was pleasing to God. And so what Paul is saying here, we are that aroma. We, believers, we are the aroma of Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that what we do, our actions, our good works, our righteous uh, deeds, doesn't make us any more acceptable by God. That's not the gospel. The gospel says that we are fully accepted by God because Jesus paid the perfect sacrifice by living the life that we should have lived and dying the death that we should have died and dying in our place. We can't be more acceptable before God because of what Christ has done for us. What makes, uh, what makes us acceptable is that Christ died. That's the gospel. But Paul, when he talks about this fragrance, he's saying, listen, this is a fragrance Jesus' sacrifice you used to hate. He said it used to be death to you. Now the sacrifice of Christ is life to you. Show me again, verse 15 and 16. For we the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things. It is only those who believe who love the sacrificial death of Christ. That's why you can't make the gospel cool. No matter how many times you try it, it's death to the one who's numb to the gospel. It's life to the one that the Spirit is drawing. And so here's, here's the thing that I think Paul's trying to communicate here. Let me just share this story about my life here. One of my favorite smells is a tobacco warehouse. Now, I don't smoke. I don't chew. I never dated girls who do, right? But my dad is, uh, my dad's an auctioneer, and he used to be a tobacco auctioneer. And so this meant that he would spend his summers in a smoking hot tobacco warehouse. And uh, he did that right before it processed. I don't know if you've ever smelt tobacco before it's processed, but when I was a kid, my dad would come home, face all dirty, little pieces of tobacco all over him, and we'd come home, and I used to think, man, my dad stinks. My dad stinks. Like, I didn't even want to, you know, give me a hug. No, 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 you go upstairs, you know, like, go upstairs, right? And so I grew up thinking, my dad stinks. And so but when I was about 12 years old, I started spending my summers going to the warehouse with my dad and working in that warehouse, as hot as it was. I mean, it's, it's like 90-something degrees. It's like 120 degrees in there. 
And you're, you're in there working, and you're, you're, you're pushing, and you're, you're, all of, you're pushing these tobacco things all around, these 250-pound sheets of tobacco, and you're all sweating, and it gets all over you. And then what, this is the very first job I had, and what that did for me when I did that, it started to give me a pr- appreciation of the sacrifice that my dad made. And then what began to happen is I started to smell like that, and there was this pride of me putting in that hard work, and there was this pride of me smelling just like him. And then it literally became one of my favorite smells. I love to smell like my father. And so the aroma of Christ is to live our lives reflecting the smell of our father, the smell of the sacrificial death of Christ. That's what it means. You are saying, this is now, it used to be my least favorite smell, but now that I understand what this smell means, this sacrifice means, I am going to love it. And then I'm going to live my life reflecting that same sacrifice. Paul communicates the same idea, Romans 12, 1 through 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living what? A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may be, that, that by testing you may discern what the, here it is again, the will of God is. What is good and acceptable and perfect? How do you know the will of God? Paul says, it's simple. You live your life as a living sacrifice. That's the will of God for every believer, for every believer in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and every believer today until Christ returns. That is it. This is what it means to be in the will of God. You trust him. You obey him. You position your life around the whole truth of the gospel. That's what it means. And look at what Paul says about this life. Verse 17. For we are not like many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Paul is saying, we aren't like those who live for themselves. We are the ones commissioned by God and the ones who are sent out. And those who are sent out live their life as a living sacrifice. In verse 14, he calls it a triumphal process. The imagery of, used of a triumphal process is describing soldiers who come off the battlefield and they have this victorious pride about them. And what Paul is saying that if we live to obey Christ, we can walk in confidence knowing that we are in the will of God. That's what it means to be successful. That's what it means to have true victory. You live your life as a living sacrifice. And so here's why this is all important this morning. When it comes to understanding the will of God for our lives as Americans, as Americans, we often want perfect fulfillment. And part of that fulfillment is to fulfill that perfect destiny that's out there. I mean, even in our Declaration of Independence, have life, liberty, and the pursuit of what? 
happiness. If I can find that, I'm fulfilled. I've fulfilled my destiny. As Americans, we literally are trained to think we're destined for something really big. And so when we, we, when we become believers, we try to find that big plan in Christ. And there's nothing wrong with having dreams. There's nothing wrong with wanting our lives to matter in a particular way. However, when it comes to the will of God, we often put so much pressure on ourselves and feel like we're, we're, we're not living the right life if we don't do that one big thing. If we don't do that one big thing, we're disappointing God. We're not obeying God. And we can sort of treat God's will like it's this giant corn maze. If we don't find that destination in this corn maze, then we'll be lost through our life and we've failed. But let me just say, there's more freedom in Christ than that. There's more freedom in Christ than that. God didn't just throw you in the world and say, hope you figure it out. If you don't figure it out, you're outside of my will. It's not what he does. Man, he loves you. He wants you to enjoy this life, but position your life around the gospel as you enjoy this life. And so here's an example. I, I, several, like over a decade ago now, I was praying about planting a church. And my wife and I, we began to pray and ask the Lord, where would you have us? Where would you want us to go? Did I get a big message in the sky? No. Did I get a phone call that day? No. So I said, well, I've always liked art and culture. I love places that have great music venues. So I ended up in Greenville. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but listen, our first choice was Savannah, Georgia. And I got in a 15-passenger van with a bunch of church planners, and we prayed. We prayed like we'd stop here and pray. We'd stop here and pray. We'd stop here and pray. And after that trip, I just said, this is not for us. This is not my skill set. I love Eastern North Carolina. I've always wanted to see the gospel be planted in Eastern North Carolina. When we came here, it, God just began to work and began to provide for us, and we began to just be thankful. And so listen, here's why I tell you all that. If we would have decided to just stick it out and say, no, I'm going to plow through, and I'm going to become some magical hipster in Savannah and plant a hipstery gospel church, then guess what? I would not be outside of the will of God. Now, God wanted me here. Do you know why? Because I'm here. That's why I know that. I had two decisions. God would have loved me the same. I wouldn't be in sin if I chose either one. I chose one, and I took responsibility of that decision. I'm moving my family here. I have to provide for my wife and my children either way. That's my number one responsibility. And then as I'm here, I just trust the Lord. This is what he has. This is what he has. And so listen, the sovereignty of God, we, we are always looking. What do you have for me in the future? What's ahead? Let me just tell you, the sovereignty of God has not worked that way. Most of the time, when I say most, like 99.999% of the time, the sovereignty of God is something that you see through the rearview mirror, not something that you see over the dashboard. Meaning, well, was that God's plan? Oh, it looked like it was. I'm glad I'm here now. Look at what God had for me. And I tell you that to not, not belittle what you're trying to do and what you're praying for. I, I, I tell you that so that you would have freedom in Christ and know I can just trust him. I can just trust him. Paul was a man who just obeyed God. 
And he took the gospel wherever he went. And this is why he says, through us spreads the fragrance of knowledge of him everywhere. This is what it means, believer. This is what it means to be in the will of God. And so this morning, there are several types of people in this room. If you're a person who is always looking for messages from God, you're always trying to find God's will in literally everything. You're cereal and you're trying to find your ABC cereal and you're trying to find the super message that God wants you to do, but then you realize you have Cheerios and the message is, ooh, like you're trying to figure that out. <laughs> Can I just tell you, to trust God and to take him at his word. If you get more excited about God telling you a specific plan for your life than you do actually reading his word, there's a problem. Get excited about loving Jesus first and then allow him to work in your life. St. Augustine, when he talks about this issue, he says, love Jesus and then do what you want. I love that because he's saying, as you love Jesus, your passions will become his passions. Your desires will be pleasing uh, him and doing what he loves more than your own comfort. And so that's what I would say to you this morning. If you're one of those people who are always looking for messages from God. Man, there's a whole polar opposite type of person here this morning as well. If you are a person who doesn't consider what the Lord might have for your life, you probably aren't taking very many risks for him. And here's what I would say to you. Be the aroma that reflects the sacrificial death of Christ. Live your lives as a living sacrifice. Take a chance for the gospel. Position your life and your career decision how you want to raise your family, where you want to live, position that around how you can be a, a sweet aroma to the community that you're around and to those that you partner with. Make your life around the gospel. Make a decision that challenges you to trust Christ. Have you ever made a decision that was really a sacrifice for Christ? How do you smell do you smell like the fragrance of Christ and his sacrificial life and death? And it's this morning, it's our hope, wherever you are in the spectrum, that the gospel would be our motivation, that through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ everywhere. Integrity Church, this is the will of God for all of us. And so could Integrity Church be a fragrance of Christ that spreads through Greenville Eastern North Carolina, and throughout the world. That's our hope this morning. God help us. Let's pray.